Um, so enough people to join. I'm going to go ahead and uh, start it up. Thank all of you for joining us on this lovely Tuesday as we uh, dive into our continued and second reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, today we are going to be reading through uh, section 2.1. Uh, we'll be moving into chapter two, psychoanalysis and familialism, the holy family. Uh, our talk today is primarily going to be with section one, where we're going over Oedipus and how Oedipus functions and a lot of their critiques on this. Uh, I'm glad we have a bunch of people here who are far more experienced with a handful of the things that are going to be brought up. Uh, section three, I, I for sure struggle far more. Uh, section two, I really uh, don't struggle quite as much with some of it, but it's, uh, it is a challenge to get through. So just a preface ahead of all of that. So, uh, uh, Anne, uh, probably switch to push to talk. All right. Um, well with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, dive in and we're going to begin reading, uh, the imperialism of Oedipus. Oedipus restrained is the figure of the daddy, mommy, me triangle, the familial constellation in person. But when psychoanalysis makes of Oedipus, its dogma. It is not unaware of the existence of relations said to be pre-Oedipal in the child, exo-Oedipal in the psychotic, para-Oedipal in others. The function of Oedipus as dogma or as the nuclear complex is inseparable from a forcing by which the psychoanalyst as theoretician elevates himself to the conception of a generalized Oedipus. On the one hand, for each subject of either sex, he takes into consideration an intensive series of instincts, affects, and relations that link the normal and positive form of the complex to its inverse or negative form, a standard model, Oedipus, such as Freud presents in The Ego and the Id, which makes it possible to connect the pre-Oedipal phases with the negative complex when this seems called for. On the other hand, he takes into consideration the coexistence in extension of the subjects themselves in their multiple interactions, a group Oedipus that brings together relatives, descendants, and ascendants. It is in this manner that the schizophrenic's visible resistance to Oedipalization, the obvious absence of the Oedipal link, can be obscured in a grand parental constellation, either because an accumulation of three generations is deemed necessary in order to produce a psychotic, or because an even more direct mechanism of intervention by the grandparents in the psychosis is discovered, and Oedipuses of Oedipus are constituted to the second power. Neuroses, the father-mother, but grandma, that's psychosis. Finally, the distinction between the imaginary and the symbolic permits the emergence of an Oedipal structure as a system of positions and functions that do not conform to the variable figure of those who come to occupy them in a given social or pathological formation. A structural Oedipus, three plus one, that does not conform to a triangle, but performs all the possible triangulations by distributing in a given domain desire, its object, and the law. It starts strong. Anyone want to tackle this one? Anyone got a quick thought? It seems like they're referencing uh, Lacan here again with the imaginary and symbolic. Um, so the footnote says specifically the reason they capitalize is because of the Lacanian translation that always capitalizes imaginary and symbolic. So yes, for right, sure. Right. The earlier the 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 point of this this point of this uh, paragraph, one of the things it's trying to get across is uh, sort of how Oedipus functions uh, and how it has worked inside of psychoanalysis and how it's used. 
uh, again, as they talk earlier and how they will say again, Oedipus is a real thing. There's, there's uh, The Oedipal complex exists. They're not saying it simply doesn't. But they have a handful of things that they talk about here that they're fascinated with and they're going to expand upon. One of those is that, uh, specifically, that uh, on the one hand, for each subject of either sex, he takes into consideration these instincts, affects, and relations that link the normal and positive form of the complex to its inverse or negative form. Uh, the, the idea of basically taking in all of the ways that people interact, all of the uh, affects, all the things people have as uh, nervous tics, whatever is about them, as this positive form. And then on the other hand, as it says, uh, he takes into consideration the coextension of the subjects themselves and their interactions, uh, their family descendants and all of these things. This is the the web that Oedipus uh, in the psychoanalyst chair that they're trying to weave, that that Freud is trying to pull, that it's family meets uh, how we've interacted and our own sort of personality we've grown out of our life experiences. Um, this, this web uh, gets collapsed, as they say, to the three plus one. We'll get into why they say three plus one, because they've been talking daddy, mommy, me for a while. They're going to be getting into that. But this is kind of a sort of... Uh, preview of what's coming up inside of this section as far as I'm able to understand this paragraph. I don't think they're making any major claims here. They're just talking through this is how Oedipus functions. And they end with uh, the distinction between the imaginary and symbolic uh, with with uh, Jacques Lacan, his sort of layers of reality and how people sort of deal with things uh, with the imaginary and symbolic gives us a chance to have uh, uh, instead of having direct mommy, daddy, me, we're able to instead play with how symbols represent things in the world, the variable figures that come to occupy them in a given social or pathological formation. The, the president of the United States, uh, you know, they call Daddy Trump, and Lacan would go, "Oh, that that's that's edipalizing. That's it's not literally about your dad. It's that it's become this larger figure, and everything in society has to sort of rest within one of these sort of places." So. Uh, I think this is the first appearance we see of this idea of Oedipus three plus one. So like my understanding of that, I don't know how accurate this is. So I want to talk about it is that like when he's talking about in that when he puts like three plus one in parentheses is like the three is like the daddy, mommy, me, like base of Oedipus and then the plus one is like the detached symbolic phallus that serves as the like master signifier for the whole complex like it it hangs over the complex like uh like all of the chains of signification get like by univocalized by it is the plus one yeah essentially i think the plus one i and i, I mean okay. they're going to get in, into it but that's how i understand it too could they be also representing the plus one as the third generation? The because uh, I thought of it as when they first mentioned that and this is maybe a slight maybe different reading. Is it's a kind of a pyramidal, a pyramid structure or scheme in a way? Um, this, so so know. to me that it's the, the triangle uh, of daddy, mommy, me with the. Uh, the master signifier of the phallus uh, that mm -hmm. sort of sits over it, or uh, I don't know about I don't know about pyramid like a three dimensional thing, but more that the master signifier, uh, because in Lacanian sort of semiotics, the master signifier gives birth to the rest, and so it's the the phallus and my relationship with that that is the the detached 
uh, phallus that sits over it is is I, how I get it. Uh, Jack says like it, uh, like an umbrella. Uh, bring an umbrella for the detached phallus that hangs over it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's probably bad wording on my part to say that the phallus gives birth to the rest. I get it, Jack. Um, but still, um, <laughs> I the it, to me it's the master signifier uh, is how I read that. Maybe I, um... I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's really funny. Maybe a, a, an interesting thing, or maybe a relevant thing to bring up here is that it, it seems as if at first here they're being critical of like older psychoanalytics, right? And that they're basically saying that um, Freud and like others wrongly center the Oedipus um, in, in their notions of psychoanalysts. But even when we go to later forms of psychoanalytics and we include like Lacanian stuff, like that still happens. Like they're still, I think it seems like they're still being critical of Lacan here rather than just saying, um, rather than just acknowledging like the difference. I think they're still saying there's a problem even then. I, I think that might be right. The the sort of first half of this paragraph reads as sort of a, a sort of semi-critique of the standard model of Oedipus, which there's like, Look, the the way that it works is we need to really think through and talk through the things that come pre-Oedipal, extra-Oedipal, and Oedipal, like things around it. And so Freud comes up with this idea of the ego and the id, and the ego of the id solves this problem with Oedipus, at, at least in Freud's mind. And they're like, great, but now you have this other problem. And the, the secondary thing is uh, that they're talking about is the reference to sort of Lacanian version of Oedipalization, where uh, they talk about... Uh, uh, his sort of branching out where it's not just my relationship I need to fix with mommy, daddy, me, but it is my place inside of the signification of those as well as my relationship to the master signifier or lack in order to place myself. So I think what you're saying actually makes more sense than the first thing I said. Well, so they're just, it's two quick critiques basically with them saying, here's the problem, here's how Freud solved it. Here's the problem again though, and here's how Lacan solved it. But also we have other problems and that's kind of the next step, I think. I think yeah, also it, it's interesting there was this point about the pre edibilization in the reading that you did. And what came to mind for me was that, uh, you know, the, the edibilization process prunes that away. So any uh, uh, signification of pre edibilization that is non edibilization that may show itself from the imagination of the subject is quickly um, bound or uh, is pruned off by the, the Oedipalized family institution. Yeah, so and Misha- There's a conditioning there, yeah. Yeah, and, and Misha asks a, asks a great question. Uh, uh, does psychoanalytics really revolve around Oedipus? And it's, I mean, the answer is no, it doesn't revolve around Oedipus. It's, that'd be a, it's not probably the way to put it. But uh, you know, psychoanal- psychoanalytics has a ton of different parts of it. The problem uh, with Oedipus specifically within it is that it colors everything inside of psychoanalytics. So it's not so much that it revolves around it, but the way that, and they'll get into this, the way Oedipus operates and the way sort of that triangulation exists colors and mutates everything else inside of sort of the space of psychoanalytics. And so that's their critique as I, as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, the subject is the imaginary. So I believe that, uh, you know, in a Deleuzian sense, there is an assemblage of the imaginary um, 
they're referring to the, the older Freudian ego-based structure, but and then later Lacan moves into describing it as the uh, imaginary of the subject. But the symbolic, though, is um, all these acts that are going on at, in, in the play of the family that are signifying what the subject is. So they all know always and already what the uh, the subject is, and so it creates this imaginary assemblage uh, for the subject. Yes. It, yeah. Yeah. No. So it's, it's a great way to explain it. And so it's. Um, and so I, I think um, they're they're. In, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So that's essentially this first paragraph is just going through and just uh, saying uh, that there's a specter haunting uh, psychoanalysts psychoanalysis. Uh, to say to put it kind of a quick way um so it's a and it's fascinating when you when for example if you read anything lacan he's got a lot of stuff he says but the color of oedipus and how he views it and the lack and the the you know master signifier of the phallus kind of really sort of matters to all of it and uh it really becomes troublesome for a lot of things and they are in love with psychoanalysis and i think a lot of us here i am as well and so they're sort of like look, this is a great system. You just aren't going far enough. It's kind of how they, like, it's, it's what they do. Uh, they are the, the child who keeps asking why until we get to the bottom of it. It's kind of how they work inside of whatever they're doing. I like it. Um, I will get to the next uh, paragraph though, because it's continuing off of what we just said. Uh, it is certain the two preceding modes of generalization attain their full scope only in structural interpretation. Structural interpretation makes Oedipus into a kind of universal Catholic symbol beyond all the imaginary modalities. It makes Oedipus into a referential axis, not just, not only for the pre-Oedipal phases, but also for the para-Oedipal varieties and the exo-Oedipal phenomena. The notion of foreclosure, for example, seems to indicate a specifically structural deficiency by means of which the schizophrenic is of course repositioned on the Oedipal axis, set back into the Oedipal orbit, in the perspective, for example, of the three generations, where the mother was not able to posit her desire towards her own father, nor the son, consequently, towards the mother. One of Lacan's disciples writes, we are going to consider, quote, the means by which the Oedipal organization plays a role in psychoses. Next, what the forms of psychotic pregenitality are, and how they are able to maintain the Oedipal reference, end quote. Our preceding criticism of Oedipus, therefore, risks being judged totally superficial and petty, as if it applied solely to an imaginary Oedipus and aimed at the role of parental figures, without at all penetrating the structure and its order of symbolic positions and functions. It's basically a response, real quick there, which I like. Um, so one of the fun parts of the book is you tend to run into that shit pretty hard. Um, the Real quick, the concept of foreclosure uh, is uh, generally about mother-child relations um, when the father is absent. Uh, and uh, foreclosure is something he believes comes out of that because we're unable to uh, place our determinate location and have the understanding of the phallus and all these other things, and it ends up being linked to psychosis, I believe, is the setup, which uh, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. That's correct. The, uh, the barring of the subject um is a foreclosure that uh, is experienced by the uh, psychosis or the psychotic. And it's on the, on the, it does, has a lot to do with genitals, uh, a lot. So 
It's a whole thing. Um, I've always been grateful for that reason. I don't have to read these parts because um, I'm too immature for that. Um, <laughs> but I just want to point out too that as we're reading this, right, one of the things we're seeing that, and I think um, all of you have really touched on this quite nicely. So to put a word on it, we're seeing them going over the methodological aspect of Oedipus in psychoanalysis, both pre-structuralist or non-structuralist uh, psychoanalysis, but also structuralist uh, psychoanalysis. Yeah, and I want to echo something uh, Webcam Parrot said in the chat. Um, uh, I, I agree wholly with this idea that, um, I mean, the way that this book is written is, I think, always eternally fascinating to me. Um, a lot of this was written by Guattari and then sent to Deleuze, which is, I think, interesting. Um, and Deleuze would sort of uh, rewrite. A lot of this is purely from uh, Guattari, who studied under the, like really uh, kind of came from that school and could not hate the concept of Oedipus and the inner fascist that it generated and that it is, um, for sure. Like it comes through pretty cleanly, I think, in all of chapter two. So when they say um, <clears throat> Catholic symbol, they, they mean something along the lines of if you criticize Jesus, you criticize the, the whole religion since Jesus is all-encompassing within the religion or something? Uh, kind of. The word Catholic means universal. So there's a bit of a play on here. You can understand oh, this. Is... No, you're, you're fine. It's actually there's a bit of a redundant because they say universal Catholic. But to your point about the religious, there is that side here where Oedipus actually works in creating like a kind of holy family, right, which is the name of this chapter, right, the nuclear family, a kind of holy family. So they are playing on that, right, and it suggests that Oedipus, this methodological critique, this, this concept, right, it's not exclusive to psychoanalysis, but it's something psychoanalysis does um, build around quite a bit. But so it is right to say that, let's say, Oedipus is the the equivalent of Jesus, although Jesus not only being the sole problem to the religion of Christianity. Sorry to if I offend Christians by this, by the way, but I'm firmly atheist. Um, but uh, they 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 say they they are trying to say what I said earlier in the chat in the sense that. The, the Oedipus is sort of a representation of a system of ideas, right? I I don't think it's so much about um, Jesus and that. I think it's more about this. So structural interpretation makes Oedipus into a universal Catholic symbol beyond all the imaginary modalities. It makes Oedipus into a referential axis, not only for the pre-Oedipal phases, but also for the para-Oedipal varieties and the etza-Oedipal phenomena. So like even with Christianity, right, which long precedes psychoanalysis, the role of the family in that, um, in that uh, theological system, right, that can be interpreted very directly in an Oedipal sense. There's a kind of Oedipal structuralism that can be created out of that, right? So we can take, I actually know people who do this. <laughs> um, they take like the idea of like, the family in society, the family in faith, right? Particularly like something like um, uh, good old Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. And, uh, you know, you start using that to understand uh, society in a structuralist sense as this universal uh, central concept, right? And so what does that do by creating a nuclear family? 
Well, it, it, it's ripe for Oedipus at that point, right? In fact, psychoanalysis here might even say it, it's indicative of Oedipus just to make that move, right? And so that kind of, that kind of, um, I almost want to call it a confusion between all that, where that, that's all coming together and colliding in this manner. That seems to be what they're getting at as I read them, that all of this kind of coagulates around Oedipus and through Oedipus for that matter paragraph. For us, however, the problem is one of knowing if, indeed, that is where the difference enters in. Wouldn't the real difference be between Oedipus, structural as well as imaginary, and something else that all the Oedipuses crush and repress? Desiring production, the machines of desire that no longer allow themselves to be reduced to the structure any more than two persons, and that constitute the real in itself, beyond or beneath the symbolic as well as the imaginary. We in no way claim to be taking up an endeavor such as Melanowski's, showing that the figures vary according to the social form under consideration. We even believe what we are told when Oedipus is presented as a kind of invariant. But the question is altogether different. Is there an equivalence between the productions of the unconscious and this invariant, between the desiring the machines and the Oedipal structure? Or rather, does not the invariant merely express the history of a long mistake throughout all its variations and modalities, the strain of an endless repression? What we are calling into question is the frantic Oedipalization to which psychoanalysis devotes itself, practically and theoretically, with the combined resources of image and structure. And despite some fine books by certain disciples of Lacan, we wonder if Lacan's thought really goes in this direction. Is it merely a matter of Oedipalizing even the schizo? Or is it a question of something else, and even the contrary? Wouldn't it be better to schizophrenize, to schizophrenize the domain of the unconscious as well as the social-historical domain, so as to shatter the iron collar of Oedipus and rediscover everywhere the force of desiring production? To renew, on the level of the real, the tie between the analytic machine, desire, and production. For the unconscious itself is no more structural than personal. It does not symbolize any more than it imagines or represents. It engineers. It is machinic. Neither imaginary nor symbolic, it is the real in itself, the impossible real and its production. Um, quite a bit is said here. Could, could I uh, trouble you to read the... The very interesting footnote from Lacan at the bottom. Yes. So to read, uh, it's quoting uh, Lacan uh, in Seminar, 1970. Nevertheless, it is not because I preach a return to Freud that I am not able to say that totem and taboo is a twisted story. It is, in fact, for that reason that we must return to Freud. No one helped me to make this known, the formations of the unconscious. I am not saying Oedipus serves no purpose, nor that it co-bears no relationship with what we do. It serves no purpose for the psychoanalysts, that is indeed true, but since psychoanalysts are assuredly not psychoanalysts, that proves nothing. These are things I set forth in their appropriate time and place. That was a time when I was speaking to people who had to be dealt with tactfully, psychoanalysts. On that level, I spoke of the paternal metaphor. I have never spoken of an Oedipus complex. A lot is said here. Yeah, it calls into question where Lacan is in relation to Oedipus, right? Well, and it and it kind of uh, the the line from Lacan here and what he's talking about is sort of I'll, I'll try to paraphrase how I interpret it. Um, 
Uh, hi, I'm Lacan. Uh, I talked about things being the father, the mother, and all of this because I had to in order to deal with the people I was talking with. I didn't really mean that. I'm simply utilizing the structures that they understand in order to explain my view of the unconscious. And that in itself is kind of what I think the rest of this paragraph is also about, where they're saying that this is how we've used a thing to explain stuff. We've now seen that there are problems with it, as they point out the issues with you know, grandparents or extended family or extra familial situations. And now what we've done is we've gone back and said, oh no, they're all Oedipal, actually. All of it is. They're, the way that a person deals with their boss, the way that they walk their dog, everything is related to this. Everything comes back to it. And that's the problem, is that it doesn't allow things to be what they are. It forces them into this very, very specific triangle. They foreshadow uh, their whole like chapter three as well in this paragraph at the sense, uh, or rather does not the invariant merely express the history of a long mistake throughout all its variations and modalities, the strain of an endless repression. And like they make uh, very clear points on like in the primitive socius versus the despotic socius versus like the erstat versus the like, representation in capitalism how they <clears throat> like the the use of incest in general or oedipus specifically as the thing to repress desire increases uh, it goes from simply making a displaced representation to becoming the like repressing representation itself uh and then finally like it as it like widens out and opens up into a triangle throughout the evolution of the socius. And it's worth noting just because uh, we're, we have a lovely YouTube commenter. Uh, his name is Terrence Blake, if you're familiar. Uh, he says, Oedipus restrained and generalized Oedipus in French uses the same terms as for special relativity or general relativity. So we could translate as special theory of Oedipus and the general theory of Oedipus which is actually really interesting. Can um, I, I don't really understand what the real is. And, and, and because it, it, it comes from Lacan, right? The, that term or. Yeah, it's, it's from Lacan. Um, I'll, I'll give it a very shitty version of it. it, it it's hundred percent Lacan. Lacan basically saw that there's a handful of sort of parts of reality. Um, there's the imaginary, the symbolic and the real. Uh, the real uh, as itself is basically the stuff that exists that cannot be reduced to symbols, that we cannot talk about in symbols. Uh, we can gesture to the real, we can talk around it, poetry can point at it pretty cleanly. Uh, it's considered, uh, I think the term is the sublime. Uh, so when we talk about the real, it's the stuff that we're, I, I have trouble voicing it, uh, would be a good sort of example of a thing that is the real, whatever we're having trouble voicing either through symbols or through other means. Also on, on top of that, when a, when applied to like the individual, there's like this new triangle of like the, the imaginary, the symbolic and, and the real in the, the symbolic is like the side of you that you show to others. And then the imaginary is the side of you that you tell yourself that you are. Right. You say like, oh, 
uh, the symbolic self I show to others is not the real me. I know the real me and I'm like this and this and this and this. And that's the imaginary you. But then beneath that is like, or the other side of the triangle or the point of the triangle is like the real. And that's what you really are. And it's like, you basically discover that there's either nothing there or there's things that you just can't explain or, or have no knowledge of. But you like put a barrier between yourself and, and that with the imaginary. Yeah, and it's um, it's also commonly for Lacan uh, that he talks about it. Basically, think about how an infant, freshly born, views the world. Uh, that's almost the percept. This is the closest we probably get to the ability to perceive the real, uh, sort of as it is without the intermediary of symbology or anything like that. At some point, the infant, through mirror stage and a handful of other things, becomes uh, edipalized, whatever term we want to use. Uh, edipalized is what Lacan says and then suddenly becomes a subject and understands its place and now can only deal with sort of the the symbology and that kind of things and only point at the real through the use of clever wordplay or poetry or art. Is how I understand the sort of the concept. So when they're using it here and they're saying, uh, for example, the line, uh, desiring machines, the machines of desire that no longer allow themselves to be reduced to the structure any more than to persons, and that constitute the real in itself, beyond or beneath the symbolic as well as the imaginary. Uh, their placement when they talk about, and this is, I mean, this is Guattari, all of this writing right here is Guattari, um, that this is uh, him, him having this conversation and saying like, look, the real is not, you know, it's not this thing that sits there that we kind of have to point at, it operates and it works and and it is made up of desiring machines. They are this tiny thing that we have to sort of talk around a little bit, uh, but they don't allow themselves to be reduced to the structure of Oedipus uh, any more than to a person. They're not a thing. They're, the, as they describe it in other places, they're, they're different than that, um, beneath the symbolic as well as the Im imaginary. Or did I go way off? No, I think... I can't speak too much for the con, but I, I do agree with that. It's just tack on to that. Not only is it the real, right? It's the production of the real. Right. So this is a really powerful um engagement with Lacan there, right? Because not only have they are they talking about desire and, and, and the unconscious here at in in terms of the real, but they're saying it's also the production of that, the real. But but when you say that the real is uh, that you can't get through it uh, to it through symbols, then I don't really understand how poetry does it, since language is symbols. Or am I misunderstanding symbols here? So so they they can't direct something inside of poetry. If I say like uh, the dew on the flower lilts, or I say a haiku or something else, the emotion you're left with, or the slight perception of a thing that we can't reduce directly to a symbol, is the real, the thing we are referencing, and it can be. There's a lot of different sort of takes on that, but it's basically the firmament of reality that can't be directly uh, engaged with without symbols. Directly is, I think, the key word here, as I understand it. But in doing that, right, you're automatically in the symbolic there, yeah? It's, you're referencing to it. The, the poetry indirectly makes a reference. Here's right. a small little um, uh, excerpt vignette from Zupanchich on uh, in the book on uh, uh, Deleuze and Lacan uh, taken from her chapter well it's a anthology or but she has a chapter in there um, and she writes uh, with the concept of the real 
Lacan gives a conceptual support to the rift, the crack, the fallure implied by yet invisible in the deployment of differences and repeated with them. He extracts it from its invisibility, claiming that psychoanalysis is in the position to actually assign to it some minimal consistency. It's, it's, it's not an easy concept. Um, uh, Zizek writes on it quite a bit, and I like a lot of his uh, writings and talks about it. He kind of breaks down the real into a handful of categories, uh, which he calls like the real real, which I think is one of my favorite terms. He's, it's very Zizek to say shit like that. Um, but, uh, that's kind of how he views, uh, what film sort of teaches us stuff that things don't directly point at, um, but that we, you know, want to, or can perceive by watching a film. A simple example would be the movie Avatar or Dances with Wolves or any of these that don't explicitly say that being a white guy is what saves people, but that's totally what the movie's kind of saying, uh sort of like it's in you're engaging with something that isn't literally symbolized or directly symbolized that it's through this sort of uh you know uh, intangibility of all of the symbols coexisting that sort of plays out a thing this is how poetry and other things access the real art accesses the real in that way stuff like that um so that's kind of the idea it's a again not the easiest uh concept but that's what they're pointing out here and the conversation they're having is very simple with, with Lacan, who utilizes uh, Oedipalization to sort of create this master signifier, the phallus, that gives us our placement inside of the imaginary, the real, and symbolic, and all of these things, they're like, hey, look, is, Oedip is Oedipus really Lacan's point? Uh, as they say, uh, is it merely a matter of Oedipalizing the schizo? Is that why he's doing this? Or is it something else? Or even the opposite? And then they have a direct quote from Lacan that is kind of calling him out and saying, like where he's admitting like look i i don't actually say the oedipus complex he does but i don't actually say that thing i don't really believe in it i have to use it to describe and discuss these terms that are so important with the people who cannot discuss anything else except oedipus uh it's a everything insists upon oedipus and psychoanalysis so if you want to have the conversation that's kind of the only thing you can talk about for the most part I think they're often referring to the earlier Lacan, though, throughout, uh, um, from what I have heard so far. Um, so, yeah, the real is difficult because, as, you know, Subhantius points out, it's not an idea. Um, you know, it's a, it's a conceptual name for what's, what, must, what must go wrong in reality for an idea to appear at all. It doesn't necessarily have to go wrong. Uh, I mean, there could also be an affirmation, I believe, that, uh, and that's why, um, you know, that ties back into the uh, approach that I think Deleuze has, where he ties it to affirmative experience and that that uh, may be the real speaking there um, as well. But it's it shows, you know, she points out here, too, that... Uh, that it can relate to thought to the political dimension proper uh, instead of confining it to the act of understanding, reflecting, analyzing reality. The only problem with that is that the foreclosed subject can't actually, uh, will struggle with agency or the, the, the political in the real, at least that's my interpretation. 
um, if they, you know, if they haven't passed the Oedipalized stage, um, the encounter with the real, uh, because of the foreclosed subject by Oedipalization is going to have a difficult time understanding agency or the call that could be quote unquote political. That's actually a really good summation. Um, I'm going to move to the next paragraph before we dive forward because it gets a little bit more into some of this. Um, uh, and again, to Ben's point, their sort of preview of uh, all of chapter three, start, you'll start to see where some of the stuff falls in. Uh, but what is this long history if we consider it only during the period of psychoanalysis? Does it not take place without doubts, detours, and repentances? Laplanche and Patalis note that Freud discovers the Oedipus complex in 1897 in the course of his self-analysis, but that he doesn't give a generalized theoretical form to it until 1923 in The Ego and the Id, and that between these two formulations, Oedipus leads a more or less marginal existence, confined, for example, to a separate chapter on object choice at puberty in three essays, or to a chapter on typical dreams in the interpretation of dreams. They say that this is because a certain abandonment by Freud of the theory of traumatism and seduction leads not to a univocal determination of Oedipus, but to the description as well of a spontaneous infantile sexuality of an endogenous nature. It is as if, quote, Freud never managed to articulate the interrelations of Oedipus and infantile sexuality, end quote. The latter referring to a biological reality of development, the former to a psychic fantasy reality. Oedipus is what all but got lost, quote, for the sake of a biological realism. I don't get this one, if anyone has a hint for me. Uh, this paragraph is tough because I'm not that great at Freud. So, so far they're calling into question this, um, the Oedipal methodology, or particularly the methodology whose center is Oedipus, right? Um, and we've seen this now, this, this is, right, 1.8. This is a main thing in there where they're talking about Melanie Klein being unable to really get out of Oedipus, but only water it down due to socioeconomic pressure, right? So they're expanding on this now, and they've just introduced to us that, like, we can even wonder if Lacan means to Oedipalize, right? Does he go to Oedipus, or does he simply leave it at the family? And is he talking about the family because he has to or because he wants to? Right, there's this question of the methodology as to whether or not it's speaking them or if they're putting the turn of the screw on it. So uh, here we've got, now we've got the question of how does Freud, right, who's supposed to be the guy that comes up with Oedipus, right, or the Oedipus complex more so, how does Freud engage it, right? So let's kind of go back to arguably the beginning, right? And in the beginning, Freud said, let there be light. No, he didn't say let there be light. He found um, Oedipus to only be sort of a marginal thing, right? He does say it's like primordial in that, but it's kind of in passing to the rest of dream analysis. And I think they're right even in the three theories of sexuality that it's not even, it's not as big of a deal when he starts it. But as he develops in his career, he goes back and actually, I think he ends up kind of writing it in after like four rewrites of those those three essays. So, right, like Freud becomes Oedipalized during this process, right? Yeah, and I, that's, I mean, that's helping. So 
one of the things I I read, obviously I read Holland and a few others. One of the things I really like that stuck with me is this quick line. And I think it pings me again when I read the line where they say, it is as if Freud never managed to articulate the interrelations of Oedipus and infantile sexuality. Another way to say that would be uh, Freud never was able to say uh, what the infantile sexuality or the infant's desires towards erogenous zones or anything like that meant, what desire means. Freud was never able to uh, say what that is and sort of talk about that. The Holland's uh, point here, and I, 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 I actually am really, I think I'm starting to understand it, is that the problem is not so much uh, with Oedipus, like any sort of larger scale thing, but it's literally the idea of saying what desire means. The problem is that desire doesn't necessarily mean anything. And everything we're talking about now is basically uh, Freud and then Lacan trying to give meaning to desire at its base level as they talk about the pre-Oedipal, anedipal, extra-Oedipal, all these bits of desire they're trying to give meaning to by placing it inside of a structure called Oedipus and saying, well, these desires all mean Oedipus in one way or another. Um, and the, the, the way that this paragraph seems to phrase it is that uh, Freud, for a great deal of time, he brought up Oedipus. He mentioned it very lightly in books. Uh, and basically, he didn't super, super dive into as far as he could have uh, all of it. And their argument is because he was never able to place Oedipus correctly on all the desires that he was dealing with, specifically infantile sexuality. Uh, and so it got lost in the shuffle because of biological realism, which is kind of an interesting, just an interesting phrasing for the whole thing. Sorry, I'm rambling. No, that's pretty much it, though, because the problem Freud's running into as his, as his work develops, right, at this kind of detour, is he can't link Oedipus directly or he can't explain Oedipus and infant sexuality, right? So this becomes like an occupying problem. But with that, right, so like, like you're saying, the latter referring to a biological reality of development, the former to a psychic fantasy reality. So, right, there's a you know, there's, there's two sides of this that he's struggling with. Oedipus is what all but got lost, quote, for the sake of a biological realism, end quote. So, like, there's a problem of Oedipus kind of um, in relation to creating a biological uh, realism for Freud here. Well, and it's a, I'm going to read the next paragraph because it carries into the, the conversation now, I think, for me in my head is going where it's like, okay, uh, all got lost for the sake of a biological realism that the understanding and we know biologically that like it's and it's very odd little children my my son occasionally gets uh, you know aroused it, it has no idea what that is it happens randomly he's he's in potty training and he's running around naked right now it's a whole thing um so like desire exists for like in a lot of weird ways for us especially in an infant sort of place and so how do these things get expressed what do these mean uh it's really sort of uh the problem and so biological realism being the thing they're about to dive into uh, to continue but is it correct to present things in this way did the imperialism of oedipus require only the renunciation of biological realism or wasn't something else sacrificed to oedipus something infinitely stronger for what Freud and the first analysts discover is the domain of free syntheses, where everything is possible. 
endless connections, non-exclusive disjunctions, non-specific conjunctions, partial objects and flows. The desiring machines pound away and throb in the depths of the unconscious. Irma's injection, the wolfman's tick-tock, Anna's coughing machine, and also all the explanatory apparatuses set into motion by Freud. All those neurobiological desiring machines. And the discovery of the productive unconscious has what appear to be two correlates. On the one hand, the direct confrontation between desiring production and social production, between symptomological and collective formations, given their identical nature and their differing regimes, and on the other hand, the repression that the social machine exercises on desiring machines, and the relationship of psychic repression with social repression. This will all be lost, or at least singularly compromised, with the establishment of a sovereign Oedipus. Free association, rather than opening onto polyvocal connections, confines itself to a univocal impasse. All the chains of the unconscious are biunivocalized, linearized, suspended from a despotic signifier. The whole of desiring production is crushed, subjugated to the requirements of representation and to the dreary games of what is representative and represented in representation. And there is the essential thing. The reproduction of desire gives way to a simple representation in the process as well as theory of the cure. The productive unconscious makes way for an unconscious that knows only how to express itself, express itself in myth, in tragedy, in dream. So right, we're still struggling with this question of how to understand Freud and the development of Oedipus. So like, as I understand it, Oedipus isn't necessarily something that was created by Freud, but instead it's his version of like, representing the uh social repression right so like the propagation of psychic repression by social repression the the internalization of the limits of the system that is like currently the dominant social system so uh, what freud discovers is oedipus and he like formalizes its representation but they're saying it's still simply just representative and because of that, it like crushes out and flattens or like two dimensionalizes desire. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they go into and they're applauding Freud because uh, like Al Bloom says, and he's spot on, the best part of Freud's intro lectures is all the free association stuff. The, the conception of libido as a sort of free, free flowing desire flow, whatever, like, like passions, the, the movement of libido, the free flowing sort of connections of stuff. A lot of the stuff they're talking about here, Freud's kind of that dude, or at least one of the one of the people who kind of came up with and really sort of pushed this. So there's a lot of really good shit. And I think they're saying along the side, he came up with this sort of conception of Oedipus where it's like, oh, well, people's problems really is about this relationship. And then he talks about it again, but he's like, eh, eh I can't get it to fit. It doesn't fit everything. And, uh, oh, well, you know, if I make it fit, be sure we throw out you know, biological realism. And they're like, no, 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 no. If you make it fit, you're crushing everything because since it is pure representation and we know that the desire comes from this weird place of partial objects and desiring machines and all of these really tiny bits, uh, when you're bringing in a representation, that crushes all of that. It forces it to basically, as they say, 
become biunivocalized, linearized, suspended from a despotic signifier. I really like that phrasing of it. Yes, I'm going to come in and summarize again real quick. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and dovetailing on what you just said, too, when he had mentioned at the end there about dreams, you know, the uh, that really started clarifying <clears throat> the idea of this master signifier, particularly in dreams. So when there's uh, some sort of uh, repressed, let's say, or, um, you know, you have a scene that occurs in the dream that is like a sexual scene, let's say. Because um, for me, the, the unconscious, particularly within dreams, is more cinematic. Um, so lately, I've been thinking that, you know, the unconscious is structured more like a, a film or cinema than it is like a language. But um, any case, so the master signifier there in the Freudian sense is the prohibition, right? It's the thing that goes unsaid, that's functioning. And later it's, it kind of evolves um, or is taken up in a polysemy as lack by Lacan. So in the dreams when, uh, and, and I think in many ways there's a gestalt move on the part of Guattari here to say, uh, let's just cut that out, you know? And then when you do, you realize that if that master signifier is not in the front of the chain to begin to start linking things, then desire is signifying and not the prohibition of desire or the lack of desire. Lauren? Yeah, I mean, desire. The unconscious doesn't really need a master signifier, right? That's what they're laying out here. So there's kind of like, they're getting at how, to this last line, right? The productive unconscious makes way for an unconscious that knows only how to express itself, express itself in myths, in tragedy, and dream. So like, I, I think Brooks said it really well, like early Freud is really, is really working with these syntheses, has a really nice conceptual lucidity with what's going on in the unconscious. But as he's progressing, he becomes, um, it's, it's kind of funny, he, I, it seems like they're pretty much suggesting that he gets oedipalized in, in, as he goes, right, um, ironically. And in this, um, this is kind of where you see like the paralogisms more directly emerging, right? An unconscious as, um, an unconscious that needs a stage begins to, um, become the priority as opposed to an as opposed to a productive unconscious. It's almost like they're describing it like, and it may be completely wrong, but it really is how the text is describing it. That like Lacan, like a, a Freud had like this brain worm. And I mean, they're going to get into basically how you know, Oedipus basically creates itself and continues itself. But Freud like, oh, this idea, quick thing, that's ah, fine. But then he couldn't get rid of it. And over time, it slowly just ate everything and became, everything got Oedipalized. It's how they're describing it. It's kind of uh, interesting. Yeah, and they haven't exactly laid out why that's going to take place and everything. Right now, they're going through, like, was it because Freud was looking for a biological determinism? Maybe, maybe not. Is it because he was looking for the unconscious to be, um, and it's really a psychoanalysis in relation to Freud. Are they looking for it to become this um, this kind of like stage for um, 
what they're going to analyze as opposed to a production of everything, right? So they're still kind of trying to tease out why this takes place. Which they continue in uh, the next paragraph, which I'm going to dive into because it continues pretty much spot on. <clears throat> and yeah, Aeon, I like that. The psyche, the tapeworm of the psyche is actually kind of what Oedipus is. I like that. Um, but who says that dream, tragedy, and myth are adequate to the formations of the unconscious, even if the work of transformation is taken into account? Grodek remained more faithful than Freud to the auto-production of the unconscious in the co-extension of man and nature. It is as if Freud had drawn back from this world of wild production and explosive desire, wanting at all costs to restore a little order there, an order made classical owing to the ancient Greek theater. Or what does it mean to say that Freud discovered Oedipus in his own self-analysis? Was it in his self-analysis or rather in his Gothian classical culture? In his self-analysis, he discovers something about which he remarks, well now, that looks like Oedipus. At first, he considers this something as a variant of the familial romance, a paranoiac recording by which desire causes precisely the familial determinations to explode. It is only little by little that he makes the familial romance, on the contrary, into a mere dependence on Oedipus, and that he neuroticizes everything in the unconscious at the same time as he Oedipalizes and closes the familial triangle over the entire unconscious, the schizo, there is the enemy. Desiring production is personalized, or rather, personologized, imaginarized, structuralized. We have seen that the real difference of, or frontier did not lie between these terms, which are perhaps complementary. Production is reduced to mere fantasy production, production of expression. The unconscious ceases to be what it is, a factory, a workshop, to become a theater, a scene in its staging and not even an avant-garde theater, such as existed in Freud's day, but the classical theater, the classical order of representation. The psychoanalysis, the psychoanalyst becomes a director for a private theater, rather than the engineer or mechanic who sets up units of production and grapples with the collective agents of production and anti-production. So much going on here. Uh, first, they basically, uh, yeah, kind of what I just said, Ed Freud edipalized the shit out of himself. Uh, when they say familial romance, please correct me if I'm wrong. There is a particular thing they're talking about there. I'm going to Google this. I don't want to be wrong when I'm about to say. Um, based on what I remember from the interpretation of dreams, he's talking about like, um, and he says it's like more pronounced in, I, I can't remember if it's like psychotics or that, but he thinks that there's basically like, this desire to sleep with the mother, right? Because then he's going to move to say, like, this kind of primordial thing, right? This thing that's in the unconscious. We can explain this by looking at what is also an ancient story, right? Which is the story of Oedipus. And he'll kind of make this, um, this association between the two. I think they're also... They're tying in kind of like the inevitability of Freud's own Oedipalization leading to the idea of like an only expressive or fantastic unconscious and also 
like the reverse of that like because freud was constantly trying to represent things instead of like produce things then it it was inevitable that he was going to like create this representation of oedipus to capture the production of the familial romance yeah he can't deal with like the craziness of it anymore right all the syntheses and then the unconscious of factory so it's I, I think you're right the move for him is to kind of make it into a theater where it has this sort of like um this clearer order right where we can kind of work with that and kind of get away from the um the unconscious in this like chaotic sense i think this is also uh a reference to his earlier work on hume and without saying it he's implying that freud is pulling this whole uh the the fantasy of expression or the expression of fantasy and like the representational theater of the mind these are ideas that are being pulled directly from hume where hume's going to call like the mind or the imagination uh, a theater without a stage like it's a theater without a building or a stage that uh, contains all of the interplays between ideas and that uh everything in hume is based on like impressions of reflections and uh expressing these impressions through relations and uh associations so like i i feel like he, he's not directly calling out hume as the precursor to freud's need for a representative theater that leads to the like discovery of the Oedipal complex. But I think there's like a common callback to his work there in empiricism and subjectivity. I'm just kind of rambling now. I'm sorry. No, and, and it's as I did, I, I, I read this really interesting book on Freud recently and I wanted to confirm it. I just did. So uh, Freud in letters that uh, got published in the eighties, uh, 1980s uh, revealed the fact that his father uh, was a, uh, molested and raped him and his sisters and a brother um which probably i think has a impact on a person i think it's a safe bet but uh he write he writes extensively about his father being one of these perverts that does this and that his his brother has all of these troubles so when we talk about him edipalizing and dealing with a lot of these things and his own neurotics and his own self psychoanalysis which is part of this um I mean, it's it's hard not to bring those things in and sort of have that conversation around what he was like, what his life was like growing up. Because again, the Oedipus complex is about, for him especially, the sort of dealing with the, uh, as they call it, the biological reality, but the sexual desires of a child, how chi children deal with parents, how sex becomes something we deal with. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that Freud wrote in there that I'll say lightly is troublesome, but uh, like this seems to be like they don't know any of this yet and this stuff didn't get published until 20 years after this book came out um but it's kind of like ah so hmm, a little bit of a him trying to self-diagnose and and really reinforce these things all right probably should have said a trigger warning i think it's fascinating freud's history is fascinating to me his personal his own and how he dealt with his daughter and everything else uh, very interesting stuff I didn't know any of Freud's personal history, actually, so that's kind of interesting. Now, there's a couple of books that publish his uh, letters, a bunch of letters that came out where he talks about stuff he was doing with colleagues. It's he's interesting. His uh, how he handled his daughter, for example, because he uh, 
uh, what uh, all these things I'm saying are not things I believe. Uh, he believed that uh, lesbianism in, in a woman meant that she didn't properly connect with her father. His daughter was out, out and proud, which was a hell of a thing for the time period. And so he constantly was trying to get her into therapy and psychoanalysis and trying to change her. I believe, uh, I'm 99% sure she ended up like staying open, out and proud. I think she got married or had a life partner, died with her. Um, it's like that was Freud, like lived with that his whole life and believed it was genuinely like his fault, which is fucking crazy. But again, to talk about Oedipus, he says all of it's related to her inability to deal with him as a father and a failure of him. He put on it on himself, uh, which is really strange. No, uh, Freud did not say that homosexuality was bad, but he did say it was not like he had a very normative idea of these things. Um. Like, it wasn't like, I hate my daughter, lesbianism is evil. It was just like, oh, uh, it's like, it's, it's just a problem she has. And it's so odd the way he talks about this stuff. But it's a, the story of everything. And then his, his brother and his brother's years of therapy and him basically doing a lot of this stuff, sort of talking about these things. Eventually, I think he said something along the lines of like, uh, my own neuroticism has been fixed. Uh, he, he, but then it's not, and it again the next week. So it's a really fascinating sort of thing. If you if you uh, Google uh, 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 Sigmund Freud uh, secret letters, I think is the website stuff that does it. Sorry to go off this weird tangent. I I just found it fascinating. Yeah, I totally killed the vibe. That's fine. That's fine. I'll take killing the vibe. It happens. Uh, should I continue to the next paragraph? When you say you killed the vibe, does this have anything to do with your relationship to the father? Ah, uh, yes. And I think Bill and Ted is the best representation of Freud because it just hits the nail on the head, like, perfectly. It's just so great. All right, I will continue to the next paragraph. Uh, psychoanalysis, like the Russian Revolution, we don't know when it started going bad. We have to keep going back further. To the Americans? To the First International? To the Secret Committee? to the first ruptures which signify renunciations by Freud as much as betrayals by those who break with him. To Freud himself from the moment of the discovery of Oedipus? Oedipus is the idealist turning point, yet it cannot be said that psychoanalysis set to work unaware of desiring production. The fundamental notions of the economy of desire, work and investment, keep their importance, but are subordinated to the forms of an expressive unconscious and no longer to the formations of the productive unconscious. The anedipal nature of desiring production remains present, but it is fitted over the coordinates of Oedipus, which translate it into pre-Oedipal, para-Oedipal, quasi-Oedipal, etc. The desiring machines are always there, but they no longer function except behind the consulting room walls. Behind the walls or in the wings, such is the place the primal fantasy concedes to desiring machines, when it reduces everything to the Oedipal scene. They continue, nevertheless, to make a hellish racket, even the psychoanalyst can't ignore them. He tends, therefore, to maintain an attitude of denial. All of that is surely true, but it is still daddy-mommy. Over the consulting room door is written, Leave your desiring machines at the door. Give up your orphan and celibate machines, your tape recorder, your little bike. Enter and allow yourself to be oedipalized. Everything follows from that. Beginning with the unreliable character of the cure, its interminable and highly contractual nature, 
flows of speech in exchange for flows of money. All that is needed is what is called a psychotic episode. After a schizophrenic flash, one day we bring our tape recorder into the analyst's office. Stop! With this insertion of a desiring machine, everything is reversed. We have broken the contract. We are not faithful to the major principle of the exclusion of a third party. We have introduced a third element, the desiring machine in person. Yet, every psychoanalyst should know that underneath Oedipus, through Oedipus, behind Oedipus, his business is with desiring machines. At the beginning, psychoanalysts could not be unaware of the forcing employed to introduce Oedipus, to inject it into the unconscious. Then Oedipus fell back on and appropriated desiring production as if all the productive forces emanated from Oedipus itself. The psychoanalyst became the carrier of Oedipus, the great agent of anti-production in desire. The same history as that of capital with its enchanted, miraculated world. Also at the beginning, said Marx, the first capitalists could not be unaware of. It's a great ending. I'm going to read uh, the footnote from Abrams here. Ah, A, not ah. You see, it really isn't so serious. I'm not your father, and I can still shout. Of course not. There, that's enough, the doctor replies. You are imitating your father at this moment. Of course not. Come off it. I'm imitating your father, the one I see in your eyes. You are trying to take the role. You can't cure people. You can only palm off your father's problems on them. Problems you can't get away from. And from session to session, you drag along your victims. That way with your father problem. I was the sick. I don't, whatever word that is in this stupid PDF. Uh, I was the sick one. Uh, you were the doctor. You'd finally reversed your childhood problem of being the child to your father. I was just telephoning extension 609 to make you leave. 609, the police, to have you thrown out. The police? That's it. Daddy, your father's a policeman, and you were going to call your father to come get me. What insanity. You've got all unnerved, excited, just because I brought out a little device that lets us understand what is going on here. I, I don't think it is quadri because this um this happened. Well, I guess it was nineteen sixty nine, but um, right. So this this is really what it is, right? Like the reversal of the shift of the whole power relation right here by the use of um, not only a tape recorder, but this guy's able to turn the edipalization around on the psychoanalyst. I've I have a question about the the expressing uh, um ah shit the expressive the expressive. Oh, unconscious uh, versus the product producing unconscious. And that is, um, they present it as being sort of mutually exclusive. Um, but I can imagine a version where they, where something is both producing and expressing. No? Well, they, they don't say that, like, there's no expression. With, with, I, I think what they're saying is that the unconscious is productive. And if you like crush the production and the desiring production of the unconscious, the only thing that it can do is now produce fantasies, which are can only produce them in expression. Yes, I would say so. For them, they would say uh, desiring machines are productive because they're just creating, they're doing shit with partial objects. They're putting pieces together. Things come out the other side. Uh, really simple version of it. Please don't hate me. Um, 
it, when Oedipus comes in, it basically goes, oh, yeah, all of that's great. You guys uh, think of it as the, the guy who just bought the factory he comes in. He's like, hey, love what you guys do. The, the art, the crafts, all this shit is great. Uh, I need stuff. I need this thing made over there. That's what you're doing now. Now, they don't know how to make this stuff. They've got to figure it out. The design machines don't produce like representation. That's not how it works. But now the unconscious has to because it can only deal in representation. It has to make everything mommy, daddy, me desires, which are partial objects, desires which deal with little tiny little bits of things, not whole objects, now have to deal with whole objects. So in order to do this, we have to create the theater. I have to create daddy. I have to place him in a spot. I have to connect these representations to things. And that's not actually how the unconscious is intended to work. It's intended to be productive and push out a lot of different things, not whole objects. And the whole objects part is what they're talking about, the, the play of representation. Because now I can only communicate in this way. My psychoanalyst demands I speak of things in terms of daddy, mommy, me. And that's the joke at the bottom here, the... Uh, this is like a little play that Jacques-Jean uh, Abrahams wrote. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I anglicize everything, anyone who's French. Uh, he did a lot of like sort of, this is like an intentional like joke making fun of what happens inside of these scenes and inside of the psychoanalyst's office. And the joke here is that the patient is like kind of, let's say healthy, he's fine. And he's yelling at the guys like, I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not Oedipalized. You are, you're the one who's demanding everything become Oedipalized and like turns it around back on basically the psychoanalyst. And that's, I think this last paragraph is talking about that as well, where they're like, uh, wait, we've brought desiring machines and oh no, everything's reversed. That's the, the joke here where it's like, no, oh, no, it's no longer just my representations and the way you demand me to be. Now we have a third person. Now it's too much because you can't triangulate all of us inside of that. The psychoanalyst, to me, it's, it's not a pure thing where you're able to not have anything else affect this, which is kind of how psychoanalysts talk about this stuff. He's like, there's a lot happening and there's a lot more stuff that's in involved here is how I read that. So they, they will talk about myth and that elsewhere. And they, they talked about Jung a little bit prior to this. Right, but what they're they're getting at in this this section is to try and understand how Oedipus has this imperialist aspect, right? How does it happen that we have this problem of Oedipalization, particularly in, in psychoanalysis, right? And they're they're looking at how the holy family, or more so the family, plays into that, and how Oedipus plays into um Oedipus is kind of like part of that nuclear family taking place, right? There's kind of like a relationship there. As we go on, we get from Freud, right? So Freud starts out really interested in, in what Deleuze and Guadagno would say is the, uh, the, the productive unconscious or the unconscious as factory, right? But over time, there's a question of, is he looking to try and explain infantile desire? If so, why can't he express it at a plea, right? He runs into a problem there, it seems. Or maybe that's not sufficient. Is he instead trying to deal with like the production of fantasy? So they 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 have these questions as to why, you know, what Freud's motives might be, but the one thing that seems to stick is that it became easier, it sounds like, to deal with a representation of the unconscious 
than to deal with the unconscious as factory, which is what the stage that um, gets set will allow for the way the representation can play out, and thereby, very much to Brooke's point, so right, like what this stage does is it starts to limit desiring production and it starts to affect the, um, the productive unconscious. Right, so this representation has a way of actually affecting uh, how production is going to work, even though it's not the productive itself. And I, just to put a fine point, I'm going to post, I've, I just spent a little bit of time Googling that Jean-Jacques Abrahams, which I'm not going to pronounce right, but uh, the cover of his book, uh, the, the Man with the Microphone, which is uh, where this came from, I think, says his intention pretty clearly. It's a, for those on voice, it's a, a, I think, a psychoanalyst being choked by the tape recorder. Uh, it looks like quite violently. Did you draw this? This literally from uh, the, his book. <laughs> it's literally from his book published in, uh, this edition was published in 1976. Can I ask a question that is perhaps totally off topic? Or is it still on topic time? No, no, I, I think, uh, let's go ahead and we'll just open it up with the, the recordings uh, going, but we're done with the reading. So please, if you have any questions or anything about this section or things related to it, let's go for it. This has never mm. happened before. That, that we're on time. It, it is, it is the shortest, I think, section in the entire book. So. Yeah. And also relatively, um, uh, easy or at least understand, um, I feel like if you read chapter one, then this is relatively easy to go. Yeah, I think right? the Erstat is shorter, uh, but there are, I mean, there are, I think, paragraphs longer than this section inside of this book. Um, so my question is maybe very off topic or more of a, let's say, shower thought type question. And that is that <clears throat> they, so there are, of course, they're making this book in the context of rampant psychoanalysis in France throughout literature, literal therapy, philosophy, um, social science, right? But they are um, advocating or subverting certain mental illnesses. Um, and, ah, uh, man, now that I said that out loud, I should maybe not call it a mental illness, but at least they, mental condition. They make a <laughs> very clear point that they're not, like, romanticizing or advocating, like, schizophrenia. It's almost like they, they're they using the term, like, schiz and schizo in, like, the very Latin meaning of, like, break. Okay. Yeah. So... He, he's right. In chapter four, they address that very directly. So okay. if you if if you just open up this book, right, you would I, I could see how you'd be like, oh wow, they're talking about clinical clinical psychology is the strange solution to all of our problems. No, that's not <laughs> what they're they're getting at. Um, he's right. The schizophrenic and then paranoiac, and this is what chapter one does, right? It lays out those processes and what they mean by those terms, right? But they are re they are reconceptualizing. Uh, schizophrenia and paranoia cure. Well, I think mostly it. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think they do see a, a, a lot of good things in the 
you know, clinical, schizophrenic or psychotic, whatever term you want to use. Um, but not not in the schizophrenic who is like, you know, bedridden or, or as Dillers like often uses the term. They're not talking about like the, the schizophrenic put away in the asylum. They're talking about like the schizophrenic who, who walks throughout the world and and uh, is free, freely interprets. Um, so I think it's all, although it's not directly like they're not directly referencing clinical psychosis or schizophrenia i think it's wrong to to entirely say that they're not talking about that either because they definitely are so i guess my 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 question then comes to uh, because I, i'm not I, I i i i'm not reading this as a glorification of 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 a certain mental conditions at all it's just that there's one side to it that i'm maybe m missing so far in the book and i'm wondering if it maybe it's coming later or maybe there's other work that addresses it and that is a sort of maybe the, uh, the addressing of empathy or the experience of the other um and that and um, the reason why i'm asking it is because funnily enough to me one of the prime associations that i have with the schizophrenic even even how they describe it is that um, uh, e even without the idea of the subject, it is something, let's say, non-social. Um, and I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if they, what their ideas on empathy are, and I'm not necessarily talking subject to subject empathy. Um, well, keep in mind, they're building out how the unconscious works, right? So like the schizophrenic, is a process, it's not a person. Um, in the same way, the paranoiac isn't exactly a person, it's a process and one of machi uh, of machinic production. So I mean, is, what do you mean by that... empathy? Are you talking about the capability to understand what somebody else is feeling? Or are you talking about feeling what somebody else feels? Or are you talking about acting in service of somebody else for no other sake? Um... I guess I'm more talking about a phenomenal. Oh man, that word, phenomenological, phenomenological empathy. Um, I mean, I don't know what that means. Like, are you saying like, yeah. what do you mean by phenomenological empathy? Even yeah, I guess I guess I I should I should know this better. But um, do you uh, mean like yeah. in a Birdsonian sense or like Levinasian or? Uh, I I only know Merleau-Ponty a little bit. Um, and uh, and uh, her sir, because when people say empathy, like sometimes people say, "Oh, I'm being very empathetic," and all they really mean is like they're doing something for someone else, right? And then we can say there's like a warm empathy of like feeling what somebody else feels. Like you see somebody else is upset and you feel upset, and then there's like a cold empathy of like seeing somebody upset and then like understanding why they that they that they are upset and maybe why. Which Let one? me try to give maybe my own answer to the question, and then maybe you understand my question better if I try to give my own answer. Okay. Um, and that is, could it maybe be that their whole idea of things interacting, um, so uh, desiring machines uh, interacting and connecting, um, that that could be, let's say, the metaphysical uh, groundwork for a phenomenological empathy and how I understand that is it doesn't even need necessarily a subject but the the idea of 
um, creating a uh, creating a, a view on the world through the experience of others. But the other doesn't have to be like a person or something. But yeah, I think that's a strange way of um, referring to using the term empathy. But um, I think um, there's already uh, a bit of a false notion of uh, a, a separation from oneself and the world, right? Like that's basically what you're doing. You're, you're saying that there's like a difference between between that. And, and like uh, exploring the world through yourself, right? But I think part of the point, like from a phenomenological perspective, the point would be is that there is no difference because because you only know the other through yourself anyway. Yeah, and Bakhtin even criticizes Birdsong for this, right? Like the idea that aesthetic intuition can put you into somebody else's shoes would be to say that two different consciousnesses would become one, which isn't possible, right? Because then there wouldn't be two... You follow there wouldn't be you'd have to explain how they become one and then these then they yeah. somehow have this mitosis right um it's, it's magic it's like just mystical <laughs> connection happens yeah it's the power of aesthetic intuition but uh to that point so they're not doing a phenomenological method right now i suppose one could take phenomenology and try to incorporate this production of the unconscious and maybe deal with how that affects consciousness and build out something that way that might be possible and be a lot of work um but for them right it's not so much about how do i be empathetic right like the efforts that fall um it's not even just follows right there's an ethics that i think um is very clear even when they talk about things like connections and deprivation right which seems to me to have ethical connotations their ethics in this book is very much tied into unconscious production and that relationship with like um paralogisms and i mean let's just leave it there to keep it simple but <laughs> the ethics that i think you can pull out of this book would not necessarily be a phenomenological one because they're not dealing with like my consciousness in relation to all these other consciousnesses, right? In this problem where I, I can't know somebody else, but I've got to, you know, like, do I have a dialogue with them? Do I try to intuit their perspective? For Deleuze and Guattari, it's we're always connected in the first place, right? So it's it's all it's a really different framing of the matter altogether. I mean, I say it's quite Heideggerian anyway, but that. You're right, and that the distinction here is that we could almost call it a phenomenology of the unconscious rather than because phenomenology is strictly study of the conscious, right? Um, and it's much more talking about like it's it's more procedural in that way because it's like the processes upon which we even come to phenomenological conclusions. And I see that as a very big barrier because they're not dealing with. Like for them, the eye is the circular thing moving through the um, through the assemblage, right? That's not my consciousness. This is an unconscious ego that's in that, that's moving through partial objects, right? That's um, part of that subjectivity in a group sense. So to me, that would I, how do you deal with that phenomenologically, right? I mean, they they don't like the whole point of phenomenologically is that you dogmatically reject it, right? That's what Husserl would say about it. Early Sartre too, at least 
because I don't want to get criticized too hard for this because I haven't read enough of his work, but the transcendental ego does reject the unconscious in his, yeah, it's like his very point. early work. The point is to exclude everything except the conscious, to study the conscious. That's kind of the point of phenomenology, right? Right, because especially like, you know, that's the question of intent too for Sartre, right? Hmm. Or even if it's not just intent, even if we're going to talk about feelings, right? The I feel is still putting this into like, how do we deal with um, the ego in a conscious sense as opposed to in the same way he talks about like the I think, right? Um, whether or not we're just dealing with intention, we're still dealing with like the I in the conscious sense. So like the, uh, the someone will have to help me out with the pronunciation, but the epoche, uh, the Epoque. stepping back. Epoche, okay. thank you. Yeah, the epoche, right? That wouldn't make sense until it was in watery because how would the doors, where's, where's the transcendental ego going to take a step back, right? I mean, there is still an epoche, though, and that's like, I suppose, where we could take a Husserlian look at, at, at this book. Um, is that there is still a, a historicity like present in, in the formation of these, uh, of, of like becoming. True. I mean, even the passive synthesis, right? But that that influence is still, I think, not going to be in a uh, like their methodology would still. Well, that comes before phenomenology happens for Husserl. Oh, really? Anyway, yeah, because they're talking about before before they're like we're going to lay out what it means to talk about things phenomenologically, and that's when they talk about the epoche initially. So it actually comes before the field of phenomenology actually exists, you know, in the text. Well, I, I love that I was able to understand a few of those words. So thank you guys for talking. Any any questions that's not about what they just discussed? I will, I'll go back. Uh, Balin, RF Balin asked uh, just a quick thing, because uh, they do mention it lightly. What is a celibate machine in the realm of all these other machines? Anyone will have a quick version of that? Um, it's it, it it's emerges, maybe emerges the wrong time, but it springs from the, the paranoiac machine and the paranoiac machine is like a rejection of connections right and gradually like this tension brought upon by the paranoiac machine builds up and builds up and builds up until there's like a, a celibate birth of the of the celibate machine that like miraculously comes into existence and the the example that they gave for it earlier uh i can't remember in which section but they talk about it earlier um is uh, the realization of like uh, being trans, like uh, realizing, oh, I, I am a woman or whatever is like a, it's like a thing that's just suddenly seems to miraculously be born from these tensions that you have before. It's, it's so it's the paranoiac machine and the schizophrenic machine. When the body without organs is investing during that second, well, I shouldn't say investing. When it's, um, when it's creating the paranoiac and the schizophrenic processes, that tension is, um, transferred and seceded into the celibate machine and that's where you get what you're talking about which is the so that's what it was you could say it's somewhat like an epiphany but i think epiphany may be a broader term yeah they're, yeah. they're born out of uh sort of interactions with social machines like they the they don't have the birth in the same place as uh, desiring machines sort of in that core fount of desire that's why they're i think they term them celibate machines because they don't have the sort of uh, sexual denotation that comes with them. Is that fair, Webcam Parrot? Um, 
I mean, it could it could be sexual. It doesn't have to be. Certainly, it's it's just like an an emergence of a a property or like whatever that inscription is on on the uh, within the the celibate machine, like prior to it um, becoming apparent, is a which is like a non-specific thing. It's one of the fun uh, sections. Easier to get through. Uh, we will be diving into more difficulty very soon here because we're about to get into the three texts of Freud, which is uh, I'm going to have to spend all this next seven days up until the next reading, like studying this again. Because I remember the first time around, this is when we start getting into like Trevor. This is when we start getting into blah, blah, blah. And all these little things that I do not have the background in at all. So uh, I have to this time because now I'm the one leading the conversation. So that'll be really fun. Uh, thank all of you guys for joining us today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and cut uh, the recording short and say thank you to our YouTube viewers. We had 27 viewers today, guys. Like, come on, that's crazy. Oh, that's uh, pretty good. That's, that's 26 more than yesterday. <laughs> it's 26 more than yesterday. Also, to be fair, today's uh, conversation was significantly more coherent.